Economist. In London, this is The Economist with the pick of our week. I'm Anne McElvoy, senior editor. And in this show, the French turn their backs on baguettes. South Koreans tighten their apron strings and a dead pope is resurrected. But first, we look at our cover leader with The Economist's bold and controversial call to legalise the right to die. The idea fills its critics with dismay. For some, the argument is moral and absolute. Deliberately ending a human life is wrong because life is sacred and the endurance of suffering confers its own dignity. Our leader, however, argued that liberty and autonomy also add to the value of life. In a secular society, it is odd to buttress the sanctity of life in the abstract by subjecting a lot of particular lives to unbearable pain, misery and suffering. And evidence from places that have allowed assisted dying suggests that there is no slippery slope towards widespread euthanasia. The leader didn't shrink away from the truly tough call about whether to offer assisted dying on grounds of mental suffering. No one wants to make suicide easier for the depressed. Many will recover and enjoy life again. But mental pain is as real as physical pain, even though it is harder for onlookers to gauge. And even among the terminally ill, the suffering that causes some to seek a quicker death may not be physical. Doctor-assisted death on grounds of mental suffering should, therefore, be allowed. So let go and let others have the choice, ended our leader. Competent adults are allowed to make other momentous, irrevocable choices, to undergo a sex change or to have an abortion. People deserve the same control over their own death. Instead of dying in intensive care, under bright lights and among strangers, people should be able to end their lives when they are ready, surrounded by those they love. Assisted dying is a topic which we expect will produce a lot of reaction and comment from our readers, and we do look forward to hearing from them. Now, moving on to France, and an article in our Europe section noted an American food invasion in the land of haute cuisine. The market in packaged bread in France is now worth over 500 million euros. That's $560 million a year, says Scherfia Consultancy. That's some serious dough. In mid-June, the country's biggest industrial baker opened at Châteauroux, with a surface area equivalent to six soccer pitches. Owned by Barilla, an Italian food group, the bakery will churn out 160 million packets of sliced bread a year, almost exclusively for the French market. Last year, sales of Harry's, its leading sliced bread brand, reached 125,000 tonnes, up by 25% on 2007. But why the rise in sliced bread sales? Well, modern busy lives call for le snacking, for one thing. The other answer is smart marketing. Sliced bread without crusts is a new fad, heavily promoted to children on television. Equally surprising is the appeal of Harry's, which sells sliced bread branded as American Sandwich. And it turns out that this American love affair has deep roots. The Harry's brand was devised after the Second World War by a French baker who was intrigued by the flat sandwiches eaten by American soldiers at a NATO airbase in Châteauroux. Charles de Gaulle later ordered the American troops out, but France's new mega bakery is just down the road from the old base. A bakery where you'd yeast expect it, then. Now we go from French loaves to Korean TV shows, as an article in our Asia section explained how culinary prowess is taking over the peninsula's small screens. Soaps, variety shows and even news bulletins are offering up food scenes. My Chef from the Star, taking its name from a hit drama of 2013, 
is about the stars of these cookbang or cooking broadcasts. Many South Koreans also enjoy mokbang, online eating broadcasts that livestream ordinary people gorging on heaps of takeout food. And all of this culinary programming has meant a boom for business too. Lotte Mart, a department store, says that sales of salt, sauces and spices have shot up over the past 12 months. It has also sold 72% more woks and 63% more kitchen utensils. Are South Koreans suddenly in the mood for food or is something else going on? Hwang Kyo-ik, who hosts a talk show called The Wednesday Gourmet Club, thinks Korean food fever is a symptom of widespread unhappiness amid the country's economic doldrums. Most of the shows are less about cookery than about enjoyment, he observes. Many South Koreans have neither the time nor the means to dine elegantly. Mokbang and cookbang offer them a feast for their eyes, at least. Using the media to engage voters takes on a less encouraging form in South Africa, as an article in our Africa section reported how far the African National Congress is meddling in the media. President Zuma has urged all media to be more patriotic, and his government uses taxpayers' money to bolster private media that sing the ruling party's praises. And ties run even deeper. One enthusiastic investor in media assets is the government's pension fund. Two years ago, it helped finance the purchase of independent newspapers, one of South Africa's main newspaper groups, by a company led by Iqbal Survey, a businessman with strong ties to the ANC and a former doctor to Nelson Mandela. So is the rest of the news being rather doctored too? Since the takeover, readers of the Independent's once feisty titles, which include the Cape Times and the Star, have seen a distinct change in coverage. Besides displaying an odd predilection for puff pieces about Dr Survey, it has become markedly less critical of the government. South Africa's government, the report concluded, is controlling the media by stealth. Dozens of senior journalists and editors have left or been sacked. The group's executive editor, Karima Brown, was recently pictured at an ANC anniversary rally dressed in an ANC hat. With editors and owners like these, who needs censorship? Well, we're not very keen on censorship, but ships of another kind have sailed. An article in our business section has more. Cruising is only a small subset of tourism, but it matters a lot in Europe because of the link to shipbuilding. Gone are the days when European yards produced most of the world's floating tonnage. China, South Korea and Japan churn out most of the oil tankers and cargo ships these days. Still, Europe has clung on to some of the clever stuff, including cruise ships. And demand for these floating holiday vessels is growing. More than 22 million people took an ocean cruise in 2014, over 12 million of them from America, 6 million from Europe and a fast-growing group from Asia. Well, that's good news for European shipbuilders so far, but they should beware of Asian competitors. This state of affairs will not last forever, says Ian Renardson of Jefferies, an investment bank. Chinese shipbuilders, like Chinese passengers are warming to cruising. In 2014, Carnival said it had signed an agreement with China State Shipbuilding Corporation that envisaged building a cruise ship with Fincantieri. The Europeans will not repel borders forever. They're going to need a lot of fuel to power those big boats. Maybe that's something worth investing in. Ah, but think twice before you do so. 
says an article in our finance section that explored the practical and ethical reasons behind divestment from energy companies. Divestment is not a new idea. A campaign against the apartheid regime in South Africa got going in the 1980s. Others have long been waged against the arms trade and tobacco firms. Recently, activists have targeted Israel for its treatment of Palestinians. Fossil fuel divestment targets money managers in the hope that it will change energy firms' behaviour. Clearly, if a critical mass of investors refuse to own the shares or bonds of a company or of firms from a particular country, the reduced demand would show up in a higher cost of capital. However, it is very hard to isolate the impact of divestment campaigns from other factors. But raising the cost of capital isn't the main point. The real aim is to deny energy companies the political, social and cultural backing to influence decisions on climate change. The parallel is with the tobacco industry, where the lobbying power of cigarette makers was eroded over time paving the way for curbs on smoking in the name of public health. Fossil fuel energy is certainly a depleting resource, but what about equine energy? You hadn't thought of that, had you? Strap up those saddles. An article in our science section looked at horses and speed. Received wisdom among both scientists and breeders is that a modern thoroughbred racehorse runs about as fast as it is possible for anything horse-shaped to run. Historical records show winning times have stagnated. Many have come to terms with the limits of equine velocity, but researcher Patrick Sharman is saying nay. Horses have tended to run on softer ground in recent years, he notes, perhaps because harder ground is riskier as well as faster. And that tends to drag times down. So might the sky be the limit for our four-legged friends? All this suggests that horses have not actually reached a hard genetic limit to their performance. A little more imagination by breeders might thus pay dividends. And galloping into our art section, a revived Pope has excited art fans across the continents. When Alexander Kader, Sotheby's head of European sculpture, rang Timothy Potts, the boss of the Getty in March, saying he might have found Gian Lorenzo Bernini's first marble carving of a Pope, Mr Potts booked himself on a plane to London. And Mr Potts duly fell prostrate before the sculpture. Bernini was the master of the speaking likeness, he says. He found a way of breathing life into marble of capturing the essence of a person, not just the physical likeness of the Pope, but his personality and stature, his benevolent seriousness and living presence. It makes you go weak at the knees when you see it, even if you know nothing of the artist. Last year, the bust fell into the laps of the Sotheby's auction house in London, and Mr Kader explained the holy effect it's had on art lovers. You stand eye to eye with him, and all you can do is look at the detail. The representation of the face is so lifelike, the wrinkles around the eyes, the last little bit of carving on the hair or the moustache made with the lightest touch of the chisel. No one but Bernini could have done that. Immortality set in stone. Bernini would surely have enjoyed all the fuss. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was the pick of our week. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.